Welcome to another episode of the Equip Podcast. Today we're going to talk about Romans Bible study, some of the things that we discussed last week as we covered Romans 4, and a short preview of some of the things we're going to get into this coming Sunday as we enter into Romans 5. Uh, This past week was a little unusual in that we had less time than we normally do, uh, because it was actually a big day at New City. We were celebrating um, the outcomes of the strategic planning that our session has been doing, and so that was incorporated into an extended worship service uh, where we saw kind of what we're doing on this podcast. We looked back at how God has been at work in the life of New City over the past uh, several years, and then looked ahead to ways in which we are praying that He's going to be at work in the coming years in some of our um, plans for the next uh, two to three years. And so uh, that changed the Sunday morning setup just a little bit, which made our time in Bible study a little bit shorter. It was also a little unusual in that because of what's going on in Romans chapter 4, I actually thought it would be beneficial to spend more time in Genesis looking at the story of Abraham and then going back to Romans 4 with that story very fresh in our mind. So what we did is we started in Genesis chapter 12, uh, and I'm actually going to read that right now, and I'm going to kind of try to comment and recapture some of the things that we did in Bible study. So we started in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Now, uh, this is the... In some ways, Abraham's story starts in the previous chapter where we get a little bit of his genealogy. We learn that he's from Ur and the Chaldeans. Uh, but this, these three, I really read four verses, but the first three verses of chapter three essentially drive the story of the rest of the Old Testament. We are waiting to see how God is going to come through and fulfill these promises to Abram. Um, And so we see Abram is wondering whether he's going to have children. And then when he has children and they grow into a nation, they need a land. And then when they're in the land, they need blessing. And so this land, descendants, and blessing that are promised to Abram constitute the backdrop of the entire Old Testament. And in some ways, they are loose ends as we come into the New Testament as well, because the promises to Abram have been unfulfilled for the most part. And so the people of Israel are still wondering, when is God going to fulfill the promise to Abram? Now, we we start with his call where he leaves his country. Um, We note that he's, there's nothing particularly special about Abram. We find this out in later parts of Genesis that he is a worshiper of other gods He's from another country, and God calls him out, but he follows the call of God, and he leaves, and he relocates to the land that God will show him. Um, When he gets there, there's a famine, which I'm sure was frustrating, among other things. And so they relocate to Egypt briefly, and that's what we get in the rest of chapter 12. Uh, Then he comes back, separates from Lot, and then there is... 
a lot of things going on in Genesis 13 and 14 that we kind of skipped over. And we spent most of our time talking about Genesis 15, and I'm going to actually do that here as well. When we get to Genesis 15, starting in verse 1, it reads, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, for those of you familiar with Romans 4, you'll notice that that last verse, which was Genesis 15, 6, is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And so that's part of why we, we jumped back to this chapter. But a couple of things here that stand out. One, uh, based on the timeline, this is roughly 20 years after Abram has left where he, his hometown, where he's from, and he's relocated based on things God had promised to him, and he's yet to see really any of them fulfilled. He's in the land, but he doesn't really possess it. Um, he can't. He hasn't become a great nation because he hasn't even had a child. And blessing, I and mean, he's he's been blessed in some sense, but not in a overabundant sense. Um, and one of the things we noticed here is that. Abram is not actually reaching out to God, asking questions. This chapter starts with God showing up to Abram and reminding him that his reward will be very great. And then Abram says, uh, but by the way, God, I don't have any children. So is the heir going to be uh, Eleazar of Damascus, who is part of my entourage, so to speak? And this is where God reaffirms to him, no, actually, your very own son shall be your heir. And also, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. So, God is reaffirming the promises he's made to Abraham. And then in verse 7, it continues. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said for said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, there's a lot going on here, and we spent probably more time than might make sense for a Romans Bible study talking about Genesis 15, but it really helps us set the stage for why the promises to Abraham are important, what sort of pattern it sets up, and why Paul would then use Abraham later in Romans 4 to make his point about how God justifies the ungodly. So first, uh, it's important to note the ritual that's going on here. Uh, spent just a little bit of time on this. Um, this is not a typical covenant ritual, at least as we understand the background of the ancient Near East. There's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about cutting animals in half and people passing through them and the act itself being symbolic of if one, usually the two parties involved, you would say they pass through the separated pieces of the animals and the implication being, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, what happened to these animals should happen to me. And that's usually the way this shows up when people talk about Genesis 15. There's a lot of resources out there that will use that as an explanation for what's going on here. But as far as we know, there is very little to any evidence that separating animal pieces and passing through them was a traditional covenant ceremony in the ancient Near East. It was, however, a traditional ceremony for two specific things. Interestingly, for our passage, one of them was a ritual that was used to alleviate childlessness, and the other one was a standard mil military purification ritual. So if you think about the questions that Abram has, when am I going to become a great nation and how am I going to know that I will possess the land? He then is shown this ritual that symbolizes both of the things that he has in question. It's also important to note in verse 12, um, Abram has fallen asleep. And so everything after verse 12 is something Abram sees in a vision rather than something that happens that he participates in. Uh, in verse 17, when it says the fire pot and the flaming torch pass between the pieces, both of those are symbolic of God passing through the pieces, symbolizing that God is the one who is going to accomplish both of these things for Abram, rather than Abram needing to be the one to do anything. He will both purify him for entering into the land and taking the land in a conquest sense, and he will also alleviate his childlessness, which are the things that Abram is most concerned about. It does clarify that doing those things makes a covenant with Abraham. And so we can't say this ritual is not associated with a covenant, but we can note that it's not a typical ritual associated with a covenant. It's typically associated with other things, but those things are top of mind for Abraham. So when we see all this, we see that Abram has believed in the promises of God that are in verse 7, based on some historical fact, the Lord says to him, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess, and then reaffirms his promise. Abram believes God, but he doesn't necessarily do anything on top of his belief. He trusts that God is going to keep his promise, and then God gives him a visual reminder to then look back on later. 
as assurance that God will in fact keep his promise. If we skip ahead two chapters to 17, that's the chapter where Abram gets circumcised. And so we can see that his circumcision was not his first act of obedience uh, or even related to keeping the law, because this is long before the law is given to Moses and the rest of Israel. Circumcision then is just a sign of the faith that Abram all has already possessed and is a way of signifying uh, an internal reality for him. As a side note, if you really think about what Abram has asked in Genesis 15, what it seems like he's trusting in, it actually makes a little more sense of what's going on in Genesis 16 in the incident with Hagar. Um, sometimes we're tempted to look at that incident and see that Abram was rushing things and he wasn't trusting in God's promise. Um, but Abram would have known his age. He would have known his wife's age. He would have known that Sarah's age was far past when it was normally possible for a child to be conceived. And in their culture at that time, polygamy was not necessarily considered an out-of-bounds activity. And Hagar being uh, Sarah's maidservant, it would not have been considered inappropriate for Abram to take her as a concubine and for any child conceived through Hagar to count both as Abram's son and as Sarah's. And so there's a sense in which you could, and this is, this is somewhat conjecture, but I think it's reasonable given a different way of looking at the events. Abram is trusting in the promises of God, and this is a way that the promise could be fulfilled. And so he does something that makes sense in his place at his time in sleeping with Hagar. Now, we look at that as he committed adultery and took advantage of Hagar, and there, there, those things are not, not true. Um, but we miss the fact that Abram is trying to do the best he can to make sense of what God has told him and is trusting that God is going to come through. And a little bit of confirmation that we see for this is after um, that incident happens, um, God, when God comes back to reaffirm his promise, he clarifies that, no, Abram, it's not just that you are going to have a son, it's that you and Sarah are going to have a son. And she's not mentioned at all um, as needing to be the mother of the child in Genesis 15. God just reaffirms that Abram is going to have his own son who will be his heir, but the mom is left ambiguous. Um, so with all that in the background, when we come into Romans chapter 4, it makes a lot more sense why Paul is using Abraham the way he's using him, because Abraham, uh, I'm looking at Romans 4 verse 3 now, what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see that Abram has believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before he's really done much of anything. And he is trusting that God is going to keep his promises, and he's trusting that God is going to keep his promises based on something God has already done in history. So we see, we actually see that pattern continuing to be repeated. Uh, that's the pattern that shows up in Exodus. I'm the God of your fathers. Uh, and then later, I'm the God that called you out of Egypt. And so when God reiterates his promises to us, he bases it on things he's already done in history. So if we fast forward all the way to today, uh, we are justified by faith, by trusting in the promises of God, 
based on what God has already done in history. In our case, the already done in history piece is Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. We trust that God has already been at work through that event and that he will keep his promises into the future, which include our own resurrection, which is in part why Romans 4 ends the way it ends. If we skip down to Romans 4.23, reading through the end of the chapter, it says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that may strike some of you as a little weird that we are associating Christ's resurrection with our justification rather than his death. But Christ's death was what paid for our sin, but his resurrection was what vindicated him as who he said he was. If Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God and claimed to be Lord and uh, claimed to be one with the Father and then was put to death by the Romans and then stayed dead, his claims would have been rather empty. Uh, There's a sense, too, that he would have paid for our sins and thus we wouldn't be liable to be punished for them eternally. But if he wasn't resurrected to new life, we would also not anticipate being resurrected to new life either. And so that we could almost say if, if Christ died only and wasn't resurrected, we're still in our sins, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, even if they might have been died for or punishment have, might have been given for them, we have no expectation of being resurrected to new life or any sort of eternity in the presence of God. We just would avoid eternal punishment in hell. So it's really important that Christ was not just crucified, but that he was resurrected. And and those two facts of history are what we are looking back to and then trusting that God will continue to keep his promises based on what he has already done. And that faith is what is justifying. It's not something that we do. It's something that we hear through the word of God and we trust in. So with all of that kind of in the background, we, we're going to, we'll spend a little bit of time. We, we didn't get as much time in Romans 4, 13 through 25 as I would have liked. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that and answer any questions that we need to in this coming week. And then we're going to talk mainly about Romans 5, 1 through 11. So I'm going to read that real quick and just give a, just a brief preview of some things that we're going to touch on. So Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, as you might have gathered from the last few verses there, reconciliation is a key concept that we really want to lean into in uh, our study on Sunday. So that's one thing that we're going to talk about. We'll dig in a little bit more with the nature of justification, something that we've already touched on and already um, unpacked a little bit, but it's something that we could continue to unpack and lean into, uh, the connection between justification, reconciliation, and our experience of peace is something that we're going to discuss in more detail. I mean, we'll probably look at um, as well in verse 9 where it talks about we have been saved from the wrath of God. Wrath is again showing up. This was something that was mentioned in verse one, eight, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed. Now we see that we have been saved from the wrath of God. We may talk about some of the um, implications of that. And we'll probably talk about this string that starts in verse 3 and ends in verse 5, that we rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope doesn't put us to shame, it's how all of those kind of work together. So we're looking forward to another Sunday together studying Romans this coming week, and we hope that you would be able to join us. 